This reading is from Matthew, chapter 13. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into a fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And when Jesus had finished these parables, he went away from there. And coming to his hometown, he taught them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, Where did this man get his wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Are not all these his sisters with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his own in his hometown, and in his own household. And he did not do many mighty works there because of their unbelief. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to the Lord Christ. Excuse me. Let's pray as we stand. Almighty Father, as we come now to your word, we're going to consider um, what it means for Christ to be the king, the king of everything, king of us, King of everything that we see around us, uh, and Father, that's a that's a, a formidable claim. It has absolutely enormous implications. Uh, many of them are troubling or uncomfortable, and some of them are full of joy. In fact, they are all full of joy, or at least potentially so. But Father, each of us, uh, we we all bring. Um, Oh, so many things to this conversation. And so, Father, I pray that as we wrestle with these readings, you would make Jesus increasingly clear to us. And will you cause the aspects of his character, the aspects of who he is, his person, that we need to particularly notice today, will you make that, will you just kind of shine a particular light on that for each of us? And will you, by your Holy Spirit, bring each of us to a place where we're able to say, yes, Jesus, you are king. Oh, and I'm so glad. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, everybody, you can take a seat. And um, today, friends, is a holiday. Every single year, it feels like I say this, uh, and it's usually right before uh, Thanksgiving. I don't mean Thanksgiving. Um, that's, you know, in a few days. But today is Christ the King Sunday. And I know you're all looking forward to this holiday. Um, what is that? Well, it's the uh, Sunday right before Advent starts, and each year it's a Sunday that we set aside uh, to talk about Jesus's kingship. Um, and what, what do I mean by that? Well, get here, just get ready for big audacious claims. They're going to come, be coming in fast. Um, the Bible, classical Christianity, uh, has always said that, um, you, and I'm sure you know this, uh, three days after Jesus died, um, Jesus rose again. And when Jesus rose again, that wasn't just kind of a random miracle. It wasn't just like, a, oh my goodness, that's, 
interesting. It, it, it had a massive set of implications. And part of what it meant uh, and for the followers of Jesus, uh, part of what it meant was this. Um, the significance of Jesus dying and then rising again meant that God was enthroning Jesus as the king of everything. And, and you need to understand that for Jesus' first disciples, none of them were really expecting Jesus to be killed. Uh, Jesus said a bunch of times, they're going to kill me, but nobody believed him. And so nobody was expecting that Jesus would be killed. And once he was killed, absolutely nobody was realistically expecting that he would rise from the dead. All of the early Christians were devastated by Jesus' death. And all of them were uh, just as shocked by his resurrection as you would be as I would be. However, despite all of that enormous surprise, when Jesus did rise from the dead, all of his disciples ended up agreeing on what it meant. And they all agreed that it, the signification was that God had enthroned Jesus to be the king of everything, uh, to be the authority over all other authorities, uh, to be the one to whom everyone is accountable. So they all believed that Jesus' resurrection meant that Jesus was king with a big K. Now, take a look at the second reading about the fish, right? Um, do you see the little phrase, the kingdom of heaven? Now, we've been talking about this over the last few weeks. Whenever Jesus uses that phrase, it's very important that we understand he is not talking about a kingdom, uh, someplace that we go after we die. What he means is to say, he's, when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, what he means is, it, this, I'm going to describe what it's like when I, Jesus says, I am the king, and when I'm in charge, that's what he means by the kingdom of heaven. And so what we need to do today on this Christ the King Sunday is try to figure out what it means for Jesus to be the king, with a big K, king over everything. Now, I can hear somebody saying, I don't know if you're saying this, but I can hear somebody saying, wait, wait. Okay, those were lots of big audacious claims. But one of the big audacious claims you're saying is that Jesus is king, like, today? Like, have you seen this world? Uh, because it does not look like Jesus is in charge. It looks like a whole bunch of other things are in charge, and then you can fill in the list of what those things are. Now, if that's you, fantastic. Keep that in mind. We'll get to it. But then I can also imagine somebody else saying, wait a second, the idea that Jesus is king sounds at best creepy and at worst utterly frightening. Because I can imagine somebody saying, overlords are bad, aren't they? And I can hear somebody saying, did you see that second reading? I can imagine somebody saying, did you see that second reading about the fish? Because Jesus says, apparently in his kingdom, bad people are going to be thrown away into a fire like bad fish. And I can imagine somebody saying, that scares me to death because that suggests to me that you're claiming that a fire and brimstone teacher is the king of everything. And that's like the scariest thing I could ever imagine. Now, again, I don't know if that's you, but if that is you, fantastic. Keep that in mind. And here's what I want to argue. I want to argue that Jesus' kingship gives us unexpected hope, an unexpected warning, and unexpected reconciliation. So here we go. And we're going to look at both readings, the Old and New Testament, uh, together. Okay. First of all, Jesus' kingdom gives us uh, unexpected hope. Turn over to the first reading there. 
this comes from the Hebrew Scriptures, what we like to call the Old Testament, and it comes from the writings of the prophet Daniel. Now, Daniel is writing several hundred years before uh, Jesus, and Daniel has experienced just tremendous trauma. So let me set up uh, his story just a little bit. His nation, the nation of Israel, um, had this remarkable history, this remarkable story. Uh, you remember, this is now hundreds of years yet before Daniel. Uh, you'll remember probably the story of the Exodus. Um, what happened is Israel had been enslaved in Egypt, which was a superpower of the day. For They'd been enslaved there for hundreds of years. And defying all expectations, God intervened in their story. And, and Israel, at that point, in the midst of their enslavement, they knew very little about God. They had some echoes about a God whom their ancestors served, but they knew very little about this God, but they were introduced to this God when he intervened in their lives in unexpected ways to rescue them from enslavement using a man called Moses. And God uh, calls Israel out of enslavement to belong to him, to come and, and live under his uh, loving and his just leadership. And after God rescued Israel from Egypt, God promised to love them and take care of them. And, and, and Israel uh, promised to obey God's commands. And, and God had, had proven himself to be trustworthy by rescuing them from enslavement. And so Israel gave their consent. And together, in a place called Sinai, Israel and God kind of got married. Sort of. However, by Daniel's day... All of that had fallen apart terribly. Because what had happened is, in the intervening hundreds of years, Israel had repeatedly, so to speak, cheated upon God. And what that means is that again and again, Israel had rebelled against God's law and declared their own autonomy from him. They wanted to be their own king. And the unintended consequence of their autonomy from God is that Israel fell deeper and deeper into a spiral of corruption and injustice and evil and oppression and, and something that Christians call sin. And increasingly, the nation of Israel began to look more like the Egyptian regime that God had delivered them from. And here's the thing you got to know about the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible doesn't tolerate evil, injustice, oppression, and sin, even within his own people. God is not a tribalist. And so when Israel rejected God as their king, God, so to speak, said, all right, well, let's see what it's like for you to live under the power of another king. Enter the empire of Babylon. What happens is Babylon invades Israel and takes everybody hostage, and that's where we meet Daniel, the author of this first reading. When Daniel is a young man, he becomes enslaved by Babylon. He's taken out of his uh, home city of Jerusalem to Babylon, and, and he lives there as a high government official, but he's nevertheless a slave. He lives under the pleasure of the king of Babylon, lives by his pleasure. He can be put to death at any time, and at one point the king tries. But now enter Daniel's mind for just a minute. Because from his perspective, it would be plausible to conclude that the Israel experiment had failed. 
At least it had failed for Daniel and for his cohort, right? The nation had been destroyed. And if you put that in a larger frame, one of the things that that means is it suggests that the whole experiment of God being king had failed. The whole idea looked like it had failed. It didn't look like God was king. It looked like Nebuchadnezzar was king. It looked like Babylon was king. It looked like empire was king. It looked like political power was really ultimately the thing that mattered in this world, at least in Daniel's life. In fact, today, later on, if you want, you can go to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and you go to the section about ancient Babylon and you can see tokens. You can see uh, 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 artifacts of Babylonian power. You can even see uh, artifacts of Nebuchadnezzar himself. Babylon's power was big. And it compelled people in that day, and it compels people today, and it compels people in this city. And it looked in, day, in Daniel's era as if the kingship of God was simply a failed hypothesis. And that's when this reading happened. Because what happens is Daniel has this dream, and it's a vivid dream. That's the first reading. And it's a dream about God on a throne. You, you see the word ancient of days there? That's God. And God is sitting on a throne, and it's the throne of kingship, and it is the throne, very importantly, of judgment. And in this scene, God judges, do you see this? He judges these beasts. Do you notice verse 11? A beast is executed and then burned. And it's a grisly scene, yeah? But look down at verse 17. Daniel is utterly baffled by this dream and really troubled by it. But he finds out that the beasts are images of kings and of empires, both the ones in his own day and the ones that are going to be coming. The beasts are images of human regimes that are corrupt and unjust and that are evil. And they receive the judgment of God. Now pause and just consider what that means for Daniel and for his people. It means the big claim of this vision and this dream is that despite all appearances, despite the arrogance and the might of the Babylonian empire, despite the weakness and the apparent failure of the people of God and the people of Israel, despite all of that, this vision says that the kingship of God is not a failed hypothesis, but rather the opposite is the case. That God, the king, promises here to hold all other and lesser kings and all empires to account. It's as if God says their injustice and their evil will not continue with impunity. That God is king and he's going to judge. And this is where we need to slow down, okay? Because this is like a Copernican revolution in the history of thought. Why do I say that? Well, almost for the first time, I say almost because this is actually repeating a theme that's in Exodus, but I'm not going to go there. Almost for the first time, empires are held to account to something outside them. Almost for the first time, kings and structures of power and political bodies are accountable to something outside themselves, to something more than their pragmatic, expedient exertion of power. They are accountable to a definition of justice that they cannot determine, the terms they cannot set. They are accountable to something that they cannot control. They're accountable to God. 
And on the other hand, almost for the first time, people with apparently no political power, in this case the Jews and the people of Israel, in, for almost the first time, they can stand against empire and injustice, not by taking up violence, but by giving their loyalty to a God who promises to be the just king over it all and promises to make the broken world right. And the rest of the story of Daniel is the story of how that plays out. Daniel works in the midst of the empire, but also resists its injustice, not by taking up arms, but by his loyalty to his God. Now, that's a story, friends, that runs right down to this day, because the church of Jesus Christ, when it is at its best, it operates in that manner. And it's hard for me to think of a greater example of this in the history of our own nation than the black church. How is it that over the course of hundreds of years, they've been able at really crucial moments to resist any number of injustices? And how is it that they've been able to do that when they're at their best through nonviolence? It's because their theology is an echo of Daniel. It's because they believed in a higher standard of justice to which God will hold all nations to account. They saw it primarily in the story of the Exodus, but it's the same principle in Daniel. And that gave them hope to resist, but not with violence. They didn't need violence because they believed in a God who says, I am a God of justice and I don't play favorites. And I have faced down many beasts of empire in the history of humanity, and I will continue to face them down and I will hold them to account. And they belong to a God who looked at his people even when they seemed to have no political power, and he looks at them and he says, entrust your loyalty to me, and I will make things right. And their trust in God's kingship allows them to stand against injustice, leave the vengeance to God, and live with a courageous kind of hope that God will make things right. And one of the things I want to say here is that God's kingship gives us hope, maybe an unexpected hope, in the face of big corporate evil. And it sure seems to me like we need that kind of hope. Where do you get that kind of hope without a God who is king and full of justice? A lot of people try. I mean, you can think about the French Revolution, or you can think about the Bolshevik Revolution. In both cases, they were rejecting uh, unjust monarchy in lots of different ways. And, and, but they, they also rejected, both of them, the idea of God. But in both cases, what they replaced the injustice wa with was a reign of terror. See, you can topple injustice by taking up arms, but very often we simply replace it with another form of injustice, and that's especially easy to do when you're relying simply upon human power. 
But on the other hand, if God is king, then his definition of justice is the real definition of justice to which we must all give account. And as we entrust our loyalty to him, he gives us the humility and the courage to stand against evil, to be able to see it and recognize it, stand against it, and also to critique ourselves in the process because we soon find that the evil we find outside ourselves is resident within our own hearts. And there's a humility that takes place and we're able to be wiser and safer in the process. But yet there's more. Because God's kingship gives us hope also in the face of individual evil. And this is where Jesus' story about the fish comes in. Because Jesus tells us uh, in the second story about the fish, remember that? Um, he basically tells us at the end that everybody's going to be evaluated by God just like a fisherman evaluates his fish. Now, if Daniel tells us that God will hold empires and structures and nations and kings accountable, then Jesus is saying that God's going to hold individuals accountable in the same way. And once again, in his context, this is a Copernican revolution. Uh, there's a guy called Tom Holland. He's a, a classical historian. Some of you will have read his stuff. Um, he says that in Jesus's time, if you were a, for instance, a Roman male, uh, then by definition, you had complete sexual autonomy, which means uh, that you could do whatever you wanted with whomever you wanted, uh, uh, regardless of what it, they wanted. Now, that is repulsive. But at the time, Roman society would have said, hey, listen, that's just how power works. It's the real world. And into that context, Jesus here says, no. Jesus says, no, 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 that is not the way the real world works. That is a figment of your imagination. The real world works like the kingdom of God, and the reality is that God's going to hold every single person accountable. And Tom Holland, the historian, points out that, for instance, things like the Me Too movement simply could not have happened unless you have a moral vision that holds individual, individuals accountable. And that's what Jesus gives us here. And this little story about the fish tells us that every single person, every single individual is going to be held accountable by God. And that gives us great hope. It gives us great hope because it means, friends, that God cares about the evil that has been perpetrated in your life. It means that God cares about the hell that's been perpetrated upon you and upon me. It means that God's kingdom tells us that God will judge both corporate and individual evil in his effort and in his certain success to set this broken world right. And that gives us hope. But now I can hear somebody saying, okay, it gives us hope. Uh, why am I uncomfortable? Are you uncomfortable? If you are, you're probably listening. Because not only does it give us, give us hope, it also gives us a warning. Does it not? And it's a scarier warning than we might think. Everybody put your seatbelt on. Look back at the Daniel reading. Do you see in verse 13? It says, Someone like a son of man approaches God on his throne. And God gives this Son of Man authority over everything. You see that? Well, 
when you get to Jesus, one of the funny things about Jesus is we call, we call him Christ, which is Greek for Hebrew Messiah, and Jesus very rarely calls himself the Messiah. He does the things the Messiah needs to do, but he doesn't usually own that term. He does sometimes, but not often. Usually, do you know what he calls himself? The Son of Man. And he's not saying just he's human. He's saying he's the Son of Man from Daniel. It means that Jesus is claiming to be God's king and God's judge. Now, why is that a big deal? Well, if Jesus is the Son of Man, and the Son of Man in Daniel has arrived, then what that means is that God's judgment is starting. If Jesus shows up, then that means God's judgment is rolling out. And we often think of God's judgment as something that happens vaguely sometime at the end of everything. And there's truth in that, right? There's something about the end of the age. But part of the mind-bender of Jesus Christ is that if he is the Son of Man, then it means that the end of the age is interrupting our present. And that's why, part of why Jesus was so threatening in his day. Um, you know, Jesus didn't look like what most people expected the Son of Man to look like, right? That's why at the end of the second reading, his hometown looks at Jesus and says, Jesus, you're just the kid that grew up on the block. You're not who I was expecting. But that's part of the point of Jesus' story too. Because fish don't know they're caught until it's already too late. And that's why Jesus tells us this story, to give us the warning now. Because here's the deal, friends, we are all of us victims of evil, which is why we need hope. But we are also all of us perpetrators of evil. Are we not? which is why we need this warning. So the hope that Jesus' kingship uh, gives us that evil will be destroyed is also a warning because it means we're on the hook too or we're in the net. And the beast in Daniel gets thrown in the fire. Do you notice there's fire in Jesus' story too? Oh dear. Now, listen, friends, the fire, it doesn't mean that hell is like literally a place of fire. That, that's not the point. The point, probably, is that fire decomposes whatever it burns. It falls apart. And when we rebel against God, when we declare our autonomy from God, um, we end up decomposing, decomposing ourselves in some sense, first in this life and then in the life to come, and it goes on for forever. And you can see that decomposition in empires and nations and history as their corruption and their evil eats them from the inside out. But something exactly the same happens within the individual. That's what sin does. That's why it's so horrible. If we prefer autonomy over and against God then it may well be that God gives us what we want and we'll get eaten alive from the inside out in this life and in the life to come. Um, J.I. Packer writes this. He says, uh, Scripture tells us that hell is self-chosen. Hell appears as God's gesture of respect for human choice. All receive what they actually choose, either to be with God forever, worshiping Him, or without God forever, worshiping themselves. Well, now that's the warning. Where do our loyalties lie? With ourselves or with Christ the King? But then there's one last thing that we need to add. Everybody take a deep breath. All right. 
Keep listening. Don't go away yet. Uh, Jesus' kingship is a source of unexpected hope. Jesus' kingship is an unexpected warning. And Jesus' kingship is an unexpected reconciliation. Think with me. Um, If Jesus really is Daniel's son of man, and if Jesus' arrival means that God's judgment has already begun, then why, this is the question I brought up at the very beginning, why 2,000 years later does it seem like the judgment isn't done yet? Why the delay? Remember what I said at the beginning, it, right? It, 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 kind of, it doesn't look like Jesus is in charge of everything right now. It looks like other things are still running the show. Why? Well, here's part of the answer. Jesus' kingship is a regime of reconciliation. And Jesus is a king who loves to give amnesty and pardon. And that explains part of the delay. And it also explains his death. Remember in Daniel, the beast gets executed, killed for his evil. And all through the Bible, death is a sign of the penalty for evil. It's a sign of how seriously God takes the evil of this world. But God also loves this world and desires reconciliation. And so in a remarkable way, Jesus, the Son of Man, the the judge and the king, he volunteers to, to suffer the death that we deserve. He volunteers to experience God's just hostility against evil and injustice and sin and all the rest. And he suffers as our representative. He suffers in our place so that he can give us the reward of the righteous. Do you see in the fish story, verse 49, do you see the righteous who are set aside? Well, later on in the Bible, we find out that in a remarkable way, there are no righteous fish except for one. We find out that all of us are the fish that get burned except for one. Jesus is the righteous fish. But Jesus, in a remarkable way, takes our sin and gives us his righteous status. And that means in practice, what does that mean for us? It means this, Emmanuel. It means now is a time of amnesty. It means that now is a time of pardon. It means that now is the time to surrender yourself to Christ the King. It, it, it means now is the, one to, is the time to give yourself to the one who desires your reconciliation and who gave such a price for it. And for those of us who have already received that reconciliation and live under that reconciliation, it means now is the time to reflect his righteousness. Now is the time to so internalize his mercy to you that you are able to extend his mercy to others. To so internalize his just kindness to you that you can extend and promote his justice and his righteousness in the world. It means now is the time to so internalize the mercy of the king that you can be his ambassador and his representative in the midst of this broken world, to be a sign that the brokenness of this world is not all that there is, to be a sign that there is a kingdom, that there is a kingdom that is both here and coming, and that that is a kingdom both of justice and reconciliation, two things that are so hard for us to imagine that can go together, but they do in Jesus Christ. And the Lord has called his people to be a sign of that apparent contradiction in the midst of this world, and we will find that it is not a contradiction, that the justice and reconciliation of God is no contradiction, it's something called harmony. And it is the harmony that is the desire of all the nations. So hallelujah, Christ is King. Hello everyone, my name is Jim Saladin, I'm the rector here at Emmanuel Anglican Church. 
Uh, our church exists to see and describe and reflect the beauty of Jesus Christ for the flourishing of our city. And I hope this podcast encouraged you in that way towards Christ. If you're here in New York City, we'd love to see you. Please join us on Sundays at 11 a.m. Generosity drives everything we do at Emmanuel. And if you'd like to contribute, please visit www.emmanuelanglicannyc.com give.